Hi there, this is Ken Roundy at USH Med Student, and we're all giggling a little bit to start this podcast, which is kind of nice. It's a, it's a good change from uh, the tension that sometimes starts the podcast. And uh, we've got three amazing students. All of you are back for repeat performances. It's good to have you back. Let's start with the uh, stars of the show today. And Katie, how about if you begin with introductions? Sure. I'm Katie Clark. I'm a third-year medical student at Rocky Vista um, down in St. George, and I'm interested in psychiatry. How did you decide that psychiatry was where your passion was? Um, I was just very excited on my first psychiatry rotation. Every single day was different, and I was never bored, and I just love the different types of patients that I get to talk to every day, and that's what I'm afraid of is being bored, and you're never bored in psychiatry, so love it. That's pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of interest in psychiatry myself. I find it to be a fascinating field. Human behavior, uh, there's a lot to learn about it, it seems like. I'm on board with you. (laughs) Pretty cool. And then, Ryan, you're here for uh, a repeat performance. I think this might be your third podcast. This is. Yep. Third performance for me. (laughs) (laughs) And and you're going into? Internal medicine. I know you've mentioned that before, and I think I've even asked you, so rheumatology like seven times now, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things you've considered. Maybe. We'll see. You've considered it. There's no, there's no guarantees anywhere yet. Sure, yeah. It's, it's still wide open until you sign on the dotted line. That's what I like about it. I like the options that I still have with internal medicine. So. To me, I think that was one of the strengths of the field. I, I feel like surgery and internal medicine have those strengths where you can be a surgeon if you know you love cutting. Um, then you know that you can find a job within that field that's tremendous, right? A lot of different jobs. And I think the same with medicine. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a great way of thinking about it. Are there other aspects or fields of medicine you've thought about? You know, I I really haven't made up my mind. I probably should at this point, but um, I've loved my rotations with hospitalists. Some mm-hmm. people are surprised to hear that, but I love that kind of medicine. Um, but I haven't shut off the idea of doing a fellowship in specialty. I, I think those hospitalists that find their niche are quite happy because it yeah. becomes, uh, in many ways, a nine-to-five job. Yeah. I, I don't know that it's ever truly nine-to-five. I think the hospitalists still work more sure. than the nine-to-five hours. Um, but they have the ability to kind of shut the brain off and leave their patients in capable hands at night when they go home. Right. And and I think the quality of medicine and the complicated nature of the medicine becomes very fascinating. Right. And uh, so I think that's a very fascinating idea. I think that's what attracts me to it is I feel like it's that perfect happy medium of let the ER docs kind of screen through, you know, bring in patients who really need a physician, but you're not following them for lifelong, which for me is not as appealing. And so... For yeah. me, it's a good, good balance. For you, it's kind of solved the problem on a complex level. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I love that medicine has so many different kinds of jobs available to it. And, and I think the more I talk to the individual students, it's fun for me to see that everybody finds a niche within medicine. I think that anybody that might be a pre-med student looking at medicine, I, I suspect that all of you changed, uh, maybe not Tom, but I think generally you came in maybe thinking primary care because that was your experience before. That's how I came into medicine. Mm-hmm. And then uh, suddenly psychiatry was on the radar. I don't know if you guys had similar experiences. Yeah, I wasn't originally interested in psychiatry. I never had any exposure or experience with it. So I didn't really consider it a whole lot. And then I was thinking emergency medicine, maybe a surgical field. I don't know. I was kind of all over the place. And then, yeah, my first rotation in psychiatry, I was like, wow, I love this. I think this is where I should be. And yeah, it kind of developed from there. 
I wish you could all see the smile on Katie's face. One of the things we talk about on our unit is that affective response to things that are meaningful <laughs> and definitely saw it. And when uh, Ryan talks about internal medicine, I see the same kind of thing too, where all of a sudden the internal medicine brain clicks on, right? Where you're <laughs> thinking about things in a way that medicine docs think about things. It's pretty cool. We should probably get started with uh, the podcast um, content. The stars of the show, uh, actually Tom, we need to introduce you again still. Sure. Uh, so my name's uh, Thomas, or Tom Chandy. I'm a third year going on fourth year starting uh, on Friday. I'll be beginning my fourth year, and I'm very excited about uh, my fourth year. I'm going to be doing psychiatry sub-internships across uh, mainly the West, but I'm very excited about the field of psychiatry, and I'm looking forward to hopefully matching into a residency in psychiatry for some of the similar reasons that Katie and Dr. Roundy have mentioned. Yeah, and, and Thomas, I think I've called you Thomas every single time you say, call me Tom or Thomas, I've called you Thomas every single time, except <laughs> for those two times today. I don't know what's up with me. And, and I also see the same smile on your face when you talk about psychiatry. Uh, great to have you back. I think this is also your third podcast or fourth. Correct. This is my third. Third. Good to have you back again. All right, so uh, Katie and Ryan, you two picked ADHD. Um, you said something along the lines of, wow, your podcast content really sucks because there's nothing about ADHD. <laughs> and I said, wow, you guys are right. <laughs> On a more serious note, tell me, I, I mean, I, I think part of your thinking was that there isn't a podcast on ADHD yet, sure. right? Um, but I think there was something more to this. Tell me, tell me how you guys came to this topic. For me, so I noticed Katie and I are able to work with Dr. Thomas or with uh, primarily with, with the adolescents, and um, I would say most of them mm. have a co-diagnosis of ADHD. Um, and I thought that personally, I thought that was fascinating that you see a lot of overlap between these things. And ADHD tends to manifest itself along with these other psychiatric conditions. And so that, for me, is really why I wanted to dig more into it. And then, yeah, I saw there wasn't kind of a comprehensive podcast going over it. There's a lot of rabbit holes to go down. There's a lot of nuances in it and different avenues people could take. But for us, we were like, let's just look at ADHD. Yeah, I think this is probably one of the few podcasts that doesn't go down any rabbit holes the way it's written up. We're really not diving into the literature all that much. All we're doing is having a tour de force presentation on ADHD. Does that sound about right? And then Katie, I don't know that you had your chance to say how you got pulled into this podcast or how you came to um, yeah, super similar to what Ryan said, um, just seeing all of the pediatric cases of ADHD. And also I think it's just a really good topic to discuss, especially with a lot of our uh, class going into primary care, and this will come up in primary care. I think it's just good to get like some of that information out there that's kind of applicable to multiple fields as well. And, and again, I think this is an overview, and I think it's largely like the entire podcast might be shelf driven, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, so we're not going to be talking about things like uh, diversion associated with uh, stimulants we might mention in passing, but that's not where this podcast is going. Right. We're not necessarily going to spend a lot of time on where in the world did ADHD come from. We might you know, mention in passing, but this is really about how do you diagnose it, how do you treat it, and the, the peripherally associated things. Sure. All right, well, let's start. I think you guys have some case uh, presentations. Ryan, you want to go ahead and start with that? Yeah, definitely. So we wanted to start out, and one of the things we're going to find with ADHD is that there are three recognized presentations of ADHD. Um, and so we wanted to give a couple of case studies that 
maybe show a little bit of that variation in how um, a patient may present. So first one is <clears throat> a 10-year-old girl is brought to the office by her mother for evaluation of behavioral problems. Her mother says she was sent to the principal's office last week for telling another student that she was stupid for ignoring her in class. She blurts out whatever comes into her head, like telling a kid at soccer practice that her shoes were ugly. It is no wonder she has no friends. The mother is also concerned that her daughter's grades are poor. She is always making excuses for not doing her homework. She loses the instructions for assignments and never brings home the school books. Uh, she needs to do the work. The girl's student reports over the last year have described her as a disruptive student who doesn't follow directions and speaks out of turn. During the evaluation, the patient interrupts her, her mother to argue that it is not her fault that the teacher doesn't explain what to do for homework and that people have, and that people have ugly shoes. She is easily distracted by noises from outside the exam room and the physician has to repeat questions a number of times. And I just want to clarify, I think this might be word for word out of U-World, is that Th correct? This is a U-World, yeah. The next right, one so we need to make sure that we uh, attribute that correctly and hopefully we don't get in trouble for the uh, word for word uh, use. Okay. Um, and so this is kind of a mixed presentation, um, is how we would say. So we're seeing both the inattentive and the, the hyperactive symptoms here. So kind of wanted to contrast that with another example, and to your point, we credit Case Files as uh, who provides us with this one. So this is predominantly an inattentive example. So seven-year-old girl is brought to her pediatrician on the suggestion of her second grade teacher. The patient has been back in school for three weeks following a summer break. According to the teacher, the patient has found it very difficult to complete her classroom tasks since returning to school. The child is generally not disruptive, but is unable to finish assignments in the allotted time, although her classmates do so without difficulty. She also makes careless mistakes in her work, although she is still passing her classes. Her grades have dropped, and she seems to daydream a great deal in class. The teacher reports that it takes several repetitions of the instructions for the patient to complete a task, for example, in art class. The patient enjoys physical education and does well in that class. The child indicates that when it appears uh, to others that she is not paying attention, she is thinking about other things. Teachers report that her attention wanders constantly and they have to call her name and wave to get her immediate attention. There have been no episodes where she stares blankly or is briefly unresponsive. Although her parents have noticed some of the same behaviors at home, they have not been particularly concerned because they have found ways to work around them. If they monitor the child and her work directly, she can complete her homework but they must continually check her work for careless mistakes. She does seem to know the right answers when it is pointed out. The patient also reports that the patient does not get ready for school in the mornings without moment by moment monitoring. Her bedroom is in shambles. She loses things all the time. Uh, the parents describe their daughter as a happy child who enjoys playing with her siblings and friends. They note that she does not like school, except for the PE classes. Great examples. Yeah. So high yield, things that uh, people would need to know if they're taking the shelf exam, what are the kinds of uh, principles that are tested here, right? Because this, sure. I think most people are going to recognize at the end of their uh, month in psychiatry, this is an ADHD sure. presentation, the other is an ADHD presentation. Sure. So the questions aren't, is this ADHD or not, right? Right. What are the, what do we need to know about these questions? So just some high yields to review with ADHD really quick. So as I had mentioned, three recognized presentations. There's a predominantly inattentive presentation, predominantly hyperactive or impulsive presentation, and then the combined presentation. Uh, these symptoms need to 
persist for at least six months, so more than six months, um, to give people a little bit of an idea. Inattentive symptoms would be things like difficulty focusing, distractibility, doesn't follow to or listen to instructions, disorganized, forgetful, loses and misplaces, misplaces things. As far as the hyperactive, that's more like fidgety, can't sit still, uh, might say something like they're driven by an internal motor or just feel this need to move, hypertalkative, interrupting, blurts out answers, that'd be more of your hyperactive. Um, one change that we see, and I think Katie's gonna touch on this a little bit later, um, in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, several of these symptoms need to present before the age of 12. Timeline question. Talk Start about it. that more, yeah. But before age 12, you need to have several of these symptoms presenting. Um, and then another part is symptoms presenting in two settings. Typically with kids, that's going to be home and school, but you're looking for them to manifest these behaviors in more than one place. In the case of the second question, I think it might it might be difficult for people to recognize that the, the parents are seeing the symptoms, even though they can address those by moment-to-moment -moment observation, right? They have to stand right by their right. child so the child can get to school, can get dressed, can get the test taken care of, can get to school, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah. And one other thing while you bring up that case study and that example, there's a, something in there that's important for us to recognize as far as test-taking skills and differentiate between. It explicitly says there have been no episodes where she stares blankly or is briefly unresponsive. Ah. So they're obviously uh, they're talking about the difference between absence, seizures, and this inattentiveness. And so another kind of buzzword just to keep in mind with that, the three hertz spikes. If you see something like that, we're talking absence seizures. It's good. Good yeah. differential. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're going to mention treatments briefly here mm -hmm. for this case, the things that are high yield for the shelf exam. Correct. But then we're going to talk about treatments in a little bit more depth later. Does that sound right? Yeah. So I'm not going to dive too deep in, so don't get heartburned that I'm not talking about everything right now. But these are just some of the bigger questions that we see um, uh, on board exams regarding treatment for ADHD. So stimulants are going to be our first line medication, both for adults and for school aged children. They've been shown to be highly effective and generally they're well tolerated. Um, second line or, or one that we need to be aware of, atomoxetine, that's a non-stimulating treatment for ADHD. Um, it is preferred in patients who have a history of substance use disorders or patients who there is concern about a risk of potential addiction. Okay. Um, uh, Alpha-2 agonists, we're gonna talk more about those. A lot of times, and Admittedly, this is a little bit anecdotal from what we've chatted with our preceptor about, um, but sometimes these are used in younger children and trialed initially to see what kind of response we get before going to the stimulants. Before going to stimulants. Yeah. I, I want to go back to a couple of things just very, very briefly. Sure. So with stimulants, you'll see that show up on the test as either methylphenidate or mixed amphetamine salts. Yes. Almost everything that is a stimulant is one of those two things. Yes. You won't see them show up under a brand name. Yep. Does that sound right? That's right. And then in the SNIs, atomoxetine, mm -hmm. also known as Stratera, mm -hmm. we need to have a, brand, a site recognition of atomoxetine. Yeah. And again, that's going to be used when questions about diversion misuse are, yep. are the question. And then the alpha-2 agonists, clonidine and guanfacine. And it seems to me that you're going to see probably the stimulants or the SNRIs show up most. Even though there are a couple of SNRIs, you're going to see one of three answers generally, which is mixed amphetamine salts, methylphenidate, or atomoxetine. Yep. Does that sound about right? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Yep, and so with those medications commonly tested upon are going to be side effects, right? 
And so adverse effects of stimulant medications, so the methylphenidate or the amphetamine salts, weight loss, decreased appetite, insomnia or other sleep-related issues, abdominal pain, um, tachycardia, hypertension. Ticks is rare. I haven't seen, personally, I haven't seen practice questions mm-hmm. talking a lot about ticks in relation I, to this. When I was in practice, I saw tons of ticks. Really? Yeah. I, uh, all the families talked about ticks. Hmm. It seemed like. Maybe, it might have been the population I was seeing, but uh, or maybe it was when I was with uh, Southwest Behavioral Health, mm-hmm. but it seemed like lots of ticks. Yeah. Maybe Again, maybe just the where I was at. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, stimulants have the addiction potential. So um, I haven't seen as many practice questions on non-stimulant side effects, but some just to mention with the alpha-2 antagonist, clonidine, guanfacine, sedation, dry mouth, constipation. Um, I think those were kind of some of the big three to highlight there. Adamoxetine is an SNRI, and uh, you'll see some of those side effects that you'll see with SSRIs quite often. Or that you'd see, rather that you'd see with some of the TCAs, I think, like nortriptyline, since that's also a noradrenergic reuptake inhibitor. Yeah. All right, so um, I think you mentioned we're going to do a little bit deeper dive into the criteria. Mm-hmm. You presented the case uh, scenarios, you presented the high-yield information, and now Katie's going to pick this up, if I understand the, the notes correctly here that we have, and you're going to talk a little bit about diagnostic criteria and what those things look like, how we might interpret those, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yep. So like Ryan mentioned, timeline is super important um, for a lot of these psych diagnoses, especially on shelf exams. So um, symptoms have to have been persisting for at least six months in this population. Um, And then like Ryan mentioned, you have the inattentive type or hyperactive and impulsive. So really, according to the DSM, um, you have to have multiple um, symptoms or multiple of these criteria to be diagnosed and there's a whole laundry list of things to kind of go through. Um, But just to pick out a couple for the inattentive type, um, maybe like the patient doesn't seem to listen when spoken to directly, um, has difficulty sustaining attention um, on certain tasks, often like avoids or dislikes or is kind of reluctant to do things that require a sustained amount of attention, Um, just to kind of name a few. Um, and then something important to mention is symptoms need to be present by the age of 12 um, for diagnosis, which is a little bit different than the DSM-IV's criteria, which was seven years old was the cutoff for that. Um, and then for hyperactive and impulsivity type, again, it's still with the six or more symptoms for at least six months. Um, so kind of fidgety, tapping hands and feet, kind of squirming in their seat, not able to sit still. Um, maybe gets up out of their seat in class when it's sort of a situation where they're expected to remain sitting, they kind of have to get up and move, Um, blurts out answers, um, kind of has difficulty waiting in line, uh, waiting his or her turn, um, are just some of the symptoms of the hyperactive type. It seems like really you can, there's a lot of examples of how somebody might be hyperactive, Mm -hmm. and there are a lot of examples how somebody might be inattentive. Mm -hmm. It feels like just in case we've missed something, we're going to add another criteria. But if you can remember those two ideas, mm-hmm. mostly yeah. you'll make it? Yeah. Okay, because that's the caveman, caveman version for me. Okay. Yeah. For sure. Settings are important. Can't just be at school. Right. Settings are important. So um, goes in with a little bit of the diagnosis and the forms you can hand out to parents and teachers. 
um, but these symptoms have to be present in two or more settings, so at home or at school, home and work, um, and certain things. Um, and I can touch on it a little bit right now, but the Vanderbilt uh, criteria is kind of the mainstay for diagnosing. So really you're gonna hand a form to the parents and then you're gonna hand a form to the teachers and they're each gonna fill them out separately. Um, and then there's gonna be a score given at the end. Um, and that kind of also can diagnose other things that are on there like oppositional defiance, um, conduct I think is on there, maybe DMDD with the disruptive mood dysregulation. I'm not sure if that one is or not, but it, um, kind of the other conditions that have this emotional dysregulation um, you can kind of screen initially with the Vanderbilt study. So, so it's not diagnostic, it's screening, but at least mm -hmm. helps you kind of separate out the maybe the symptom clusters mm -hmm. that are most, that predominate, yeah. so that you're tackling maybe the most pressing issue first. Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Yeah, definitely. Uh, it seems like there's some other tests that sometimes get, or, or uh, like questionnaires that get handed mm -hmm. to teachers and family members. Uh, are you going to talk about those later or is that kind of just the, start with the Vanderbilt? Yeah, the Vanderbilt one was the main one that I really looked in, looked into just because that's the one I was most familiar with. I didn't really touch on any of the other ones. Is there one called the CAPS? Does that sound familiar? Is that something else? It sounds else? familiar. I'm not I'm sure. sure. That might be a PTSD treatment. In any case, um, keep going. Sure. Um, so with ADHD, it's common to see other associated symptoms. This isn't necessarily needed for diagnosis. Um, but it is something that could come up in a question vignette that is kind of a distractor and might be able to throw you off a little bit when answering those questions. Um, so you might see a delay in language or motor or social skills development. Um, you might see some emotional dysregularity or impulsivity. Um, and might also see issues with working memory, reaction time, and set shifting. So a difficulty moving between two different topics or going back and forth between two different things that you're working on. You might see an issue with that. Have you guys seen a test on shifting sets? Mm -hmm. uh, so I love this. If, um, if you're uh, watching on video, put your hand straight out in front of you, palm up, and get your fist, and go down on the hand with the fist. Change to a cutting motion, so hand, uh, right hand, if your left hand is palm up, your right hand is now uh, in, like in a cutting motion, you drop that cut down, and then you turn it so that the palm is face down on the hand that's up and drop it down on the palm, and then you go back to the fist. So fist, cut, palm, fist, cut, palm, and being able to shift sets between those three tasks is a, is a simple way of looking at shifting sets. And and one of the, there are a couple of things I don't know about this. For example, I don't know if you... I don't think you're supposed to say fist cut palm, fist cut palm, right? We, we've got Tom over here trying it left-handed and right-handed, <laughs> and, and then he's also dancing uh, while sticking out his tongue and touching his nose and doing it, which is pretty impressive. It's quite the sight. It's, uh, Next I'm, level. It's, uh, yeah, the if you want to... It's not on the video. Skill up, you, you see Tom's version of this. But that's a, an easy way to shift sets in case you're curious, or check shifting sets. <laughs> Go ahead, Katie. Sorry, I just thought that was an interesting... Yeah, I, I don't have a lot to add here, so I thought I'd throw in something. <laughs> it's actually kind of hard to do. So It is. I, I had to practice. Cool. <laughs> I had to practice. Um, so talking a little bit about the emotional dysregularity um, and other sort of things to kind of keep in mind and keep on the differential. Um, when answering questions or seeing patients in the clinical setting, um, so oppositional defiant disorder versus intermittent explosive disorder versus disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. 
They all sound very similar. They all present pretty similar as well. Um, so you're going to teach us how to not be tricked on your shelf exam yes. between these different types of questions. Yes, briefly, because I know I've missed a couple questions on these, so I think it will be pretty helpful. So oppositional defiant disorder. So again, six months of um, angry or irritable mood, argumentative, defiant. Um, you might see somebody that's easily annoyed, quick to lose their temper, um, argues with authority figures, blames others for their mistakes. Um, so that is oppositional defiant. So the defiant word mm -hmm. probably isn't going to be used, but it looks like there's a lot of overlap here other than perhaps authority figures blames others, deliberately annoys others, where somebody with ADHD, um, they, they did, I think the case presentation did blame others for the mistakes on the inattentive, um, but deliberately annoying others, I think, is different than your mo your hyperactivity right. is annoying. Yeah. Okay, so so maybe that's one of the ways that we mm -hmm. get there. Loses temper easily. I think we don't mm -hmm. see that easily part with ADHD. I think it's you, you might be frustrated or have some uh, intolerance for mm -hmm. whatever else, but but maybe that's some of the ways to sort that out. Mm -hmm. And then what's the time requirement for ADHD? It's before age 12, but right. is there a, a duration of symptoms that has to be present? For six months. Six months, six months. so also mm -hmm. six months, so that doesn't right. help you necessarily no. either. Okay, it seems like there is probably a lot of comorbidity between ODD and yep. ADHD. Okay, yep. next yep. question then. Yep, so intermittent explosive. So kind of to keep them straight in my mind, I think of this one just as a little bit more severe um, severe behaviors. So they're going to have like recurrent behavioral outbursts, um, failure to control the aggressive impulses. So you might see more verbal aggression um, with like really bad temper tantrums or arguments, maybe getting into fights, could be aggressive towards others, like property or animals, but not necessarily causing damage. Um, and that happens at least two times a week for three months on this one. So a little bit different timeline that we see. Um, and that'll be the clue in the question if it's mm -hmm. an intermittent explosive disorder question. Mm -hmm. You're going to have that two times a week times three months or alternatively you will have another criteria I think. Right, you can have three episodes of damaging property or getting into like physical altercations with another person, harming animals in 12 months. So three of those episodes in kind of a year's span. And that might be different than torturing animals, which right. would be our antisocial kind of thing, right? right? Mm -hmm. All right, so, so with the frequency, it's less harmful mm -hmm. in, in terms of the actual physical, uh, inner, like the, there's, there's not physical connection in a way that hurts somebody, mm -hmm. right? Maybe pushing, there might be hands right. on, there might be throwing something away from mm -hmm. you or pushing something away from you. And that has to happen a lot over three months, mm -hmm. or you can have three episodes over 12 months that cause physical harm yeah. to somebody or damage, property damage. Correct, okay. yeah. Um, and then again, comparing that to disrupted mood dysregulation. So um, symptoms must occur before 10 years old in this one and can only be diagnosed between six and 18 years old. So more of a childhood um, disorder here. And so again, with the angry or irritable mood, um, often verbally aggressive or have these outbursts that's just completely out of proportion to like the trigger or what kind of set that off. And this is three times a week in two different settings. So similar to ADHD with home and school having these outbursts. 
um, for that one. It seems like it would be maybe the key thing that I would focus in on here, and, and I, again, I'm looking for your feedback because I think this is incredibly difficult to sort these out. Mm-hmm. Um, mood is a more prominent aspect of mm-hmm. this diagnosis right. compared to the other diagnostic considerations mm-hmm. where the aggression might be a more uh, prominent consideration. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. So how did we get to ADHD? Where does it come from? So um, just, I looked into this like pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like ADHD was first identified in 1902. So uh, a little while ago um, by a British pediatrician. And he kind of described this condition as what he called an abnormal defect in moral control of children. That was his his words directly from his mouth. So, so Katie, what I'm hearing you say is you agree with that completely? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, and he found that some of the children affected um, with ADHD just could not control their behavior in the way that other children without ADHD could. Um, and it, he did make a point to note that these children were still intelligent, had no like intellectual deficits um, at all, but just it was kind of more impulsivity and how they reacted. So that's kind of like the beginning of the beginning ADHD. of ADHD. Yeah. But by the way, just just to be clear, uh, for those of the, you that couldn't see, as she was reading about the moral, uh, what, what, how, the, how was that phrase again? So the defect of moral control. Yeah, Katie had this incredibly pained and distasteful <laughs> look on her face about how that would be considered when it would be something that was a mental health issue, right? Mm-hmm. And so for, for those of you that might have been offended that we were chuckling about that, we were chuckling at the the uh, look of distaste on our face for yeah. that language. And none of us agree with that. Right. One thing I wanted to add with the history of ADHD <clears throat> is uh, you hear the term ADD, right? Mm-hmm. ADD, how is that like ADHD? Is this another thing we need to be considering? ADD is an old term. We don't use that term anymore. So according to what we were looking at, it was in the 80s. 1980s that really there was the change of everything can now be included under these three classifications of ADHD so and and I think there have been more changes since right so even um, I think a lot of the changes and perhaps this will be a podcast at some point the difference between the DSM-2 and the Mm DSM-3 I think was a fairly significant change Um, and uh, even now, between the DSM-4 and the DSM-5, there have been some changes, and I think, Katie, you've mentioned mm-hmm. those before, right? Yeah. With the age change being the difference between age 12, previously you had to have those symptoms before age 7. Yeah, that's correct. Um, any other changes that are worth noticing or worth uh, mentioning? Um, I didn't see any big changes between the two. It was really just kind of the age cutoff that was the big one that I kind of noticed. So let's suppose that uh, I have ADHD, that I have a tough time sitting still, that uh, unless something is really, really interesting for me, like a really great video game, I'm wandering, <laughs> right? Um, are my kids stuck with the same problem? What, what is the genetics of this? Okay, so um, some studies have shown that there is heritability with ADHD, which is actually pretty high. It was 77% in a couple of the studies that I found. Um, but Ryan actually made like a good point about the difference between heritability and concordance, which he helped um, kind of. Yeah, I didn't know the that. I didn't know the answer to this. What's the difference between heritability and concordance? So my understanding is that concordance is when we're looking at twin studies. Okay. Right? So we look at 
monozygotic twins and we say this one has ADHD, then at what rate do we see it shown or the, prevalence in the twin? At what percentage do both have it? Right. Exactly. And, and I think with schizophrenia, 40 to 60% of yeah. the time, I'm putting my plug for schizophrenia, 40 yeah. to 60% of the time, yeah. twins show concordance. Mm -hmm. And and heritability then is... Is now parent to child, right? Okay, so... Yeah, genetic component between generations. And and what do we know the concordance between twins, uh, monozygotic twins for uh, ADHD? I'm not sure. I didn't see it in any of the yeah. stuff that... Yeah, I didn't come idea. across it, no. So is 77% heritability, where, is that high? Does that mean it's largely a genetic condition? What does that mean? Um, what I was looking at is there was multiple different gene areas um, that kind of show some heritability um, with ADHD. There was all over the place though. We weren't able to really pick like gene X, like right here on this like low size where it's coming from. Um, that wasn't what I found in some of the research that I was doing, but it did seem that there were multiple genes that were kind of involved. A lot of things that they're looking at mm -hmm. haven't necessarily got all the way through the proteome yet, maybe. Right. Okay. But it do, I mean, the answer to your first question, it does appear to be a high inheritability rate of 77%. Mm -hmm. right. Like there is a large yeah. genetic component, just not one gene yeah. in particular. Not one gene and maybe not, there. There, I'm guessing is a gene by environment effect as well yeah, that probably mm -hmm, has sure. a play on this. Now there are some genes that do seem to be associated with ADHD, but they're not, we don't consider them ADHD genes. You have a couple of those that you've mentioned here. Um, yeah, so s there are certain genetic conditions that have high rates of ADHD with them. So Fragile X was one that I saw mentioned a few times. Um, and about 60%, so 59% of people um, have met the criteria for ADHD that have Fragile X. So it's not that Fragile X is causing ADHD, it's just that they're associated um, and similar with tuberous sclerosis, there's 30 to 60% rates of ADHD in these patients. Um, neurofibromatosis type 1 is a third of patients that have ADHD symptoms. And then Williams syndrome, two-thirds of patients. Also. I don't know what Williams syndrome is. Um, happy. Yeah. The happy child, like... Never met a stranger. Um, happy puppet, I think, is a lot of times what they call Williams syndrome. Happy so, puppet. Happy puppet. Laughing kid. Super, very super happy. friendly. Yeah. yeah, super friendly. Gets in trouble for wandering with strangers mm -hmm. kind yep. of stuff. Okay. Yep, no stranger danger. Um, a moment ago I said... Um, Apparently there's gene and environmental effects, and apparently I hadn't read very far along or hadn't paid attention to what's next, right? So talk to me about the environmental factors that seem to play a role in ADHD. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of kind of correlation or like loose connections between environmental factors and ADHD. Through the research that I was doing, I haven't found anything that was like hardline, this is what's going to cause ADHD, like environmentally. There was none of that. Um, but some of the associations are potentially maternal smoking or substance abuse, um, low birth weight, prematurity, um, a couple of those factors. Maybe excess sugar and artificial coloring. I think Ryan mentions this a little bit later. Um, that might have an association. Uh, maybe some nutritional deficiencies of like zinc or magnesium might be associated. And then family outcomes or like adverse family events with like low income or like a conflict between parents and kids kind of where there's like a, a stressful like home environment um, can play a role. We don't have causation. But no causation. It's all speculative like correlation at this point. So it's okay for me to still drink uh, my 
uh, Big Red that has uh, red food dye number five. If you eat the red hot dogs from Maine with it, then it's okay. We're going to talk about that in a few minutes, aren't we? <laughs> Red hot dogs from Maine. All right, uh, neurobiology. Sure. Tell me about, uh, we have these really cool imaging tools, right? Mm -hmm. We have some functional imaging tools as well. Right. What do they tell us? So it kind of just highlights certain areas of the brain that play a role in ADHD a little bit. So the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex um, is an area of the brain that's mainly responsible for decision-making, planning, working memory, Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is like the area that's not fully developed until you're like 25, which is why um, younger people might make decisions that older people wouldn't necessarily make. Um, <laughs> and some people it might be uh, still not developed at 50. How old are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's one of the areas of the brain that was looked at, and there seems to be like issues or like an imbalance with norepinephrine and dopamine in certain areas, um, which is what the pharmacology tries to augment. A little bit um, and then also the basal ganglia um, is part of the pathogenesis in ADHD so there was a study that I looked at that compared MRIs to kids with ADHD and those without and the ventral striatum had like certain changes um, in kids with ADHD versus without um, in this area and so this area plays a role in um, motivation and it's kind of part of that reward pathway um, so that's where some of those motivational deficits might be seen with ADHD or why teens with ADHD might be more susceptible to substance abuse. Substance abuse is common in ADHD? Um, I haven't seen, like, I don't know. I haven't looked yeah. at a whole lot of research I think the no, I think the numbers say yeah. So, I mean, mm -hmm. it looks like uh, at least conduct disorder, you have some numbers here, 50%. I think substance use disorders are common. I'm trying to remember, but it it seems like in the back of my mind that our patients with ADHD that are effectively treated end up having fewer problems with substance use disorders. Mm -hmm. um, but, but numbers I don't know that I have. Um, I want to go ahead and uh, skip forward just a little bit to diagnosis and prevalence. So if you're in a clinic mm -hmm. and you have the average person walking through your door and they say, hey, there's just not something right, you're having a tough time pinning it down, mm -hmm. maybe there's some overlap with uh, some of the other diagnostic considerations, maybe mm -hmm. prevalence and uh, like uh, risk factors kind of help us understand that. Talk to me mm -hmm. a little bit about those kinds of things. So um, just the general prevalence of ADHD kind of worldwide is five to seven percent for school-aged children. Um, and then impulsivity and hyperactivity, which Ryan did a really good job covering, are the most common um, presenting forms of ADHD in these kids. Can, can I interrupt for a second? Mm -hmm. Is that because if you're not causing a problem, nobody's going to take you to the doctor, or is it because there is more of one compared to the other? Any idea on that? I, I'm not sure, but that's an interesting point because that might play a role into kind of why you see a lower prevalence in adulthood with it being only 2.5%. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, if the symptoms aren't really affecting like your schoolwork or other areas, it might not be as severe enough to like seek treatment. And okay, but but you point. didn't necessarily run across anything else no. after that. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure there would be. Uh, so anyway, you were you were saying. Um, so yeah, kind of just a little bit difference between child and um, adult ADHD. So like as you age, those symptoms of hyperactivity and impulsivity kind of decline into adulthood to where you might not even notice it as much or it might come out in college or if you're in like a 
career that's really requiring a high level of focus and attention and then you might notice like huh I'm not able to like really focus on this as much as I would like to so um, there is lower prevalence of ADHD in adults just I think because of that general decline in severity of symptoms so so if if in a uh, I'm sorry if hyperactive um, inattentiveness mm-hmm. fades over time that might be the reason why we see that percentage, that prevalence go from about 7% mm-hmm. down to about 2.5% then? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. But does, does the inattentiveness, um, the um, kind of not keyed in, not able to focus on the mm-hmm. task, not doing stuff but not hyperactive, mm-hmm. does that change at all or is that where the 2.5% remains? Is that the the group that seems to remain most affected through life? Any, any ideas about that? I'm not sure. Um, it seems like from what I was reading, it just seems, yeah, you're less able to focus on certain tasks like in adulthood Um, that's what I was reading but I'm not really sure I think there's also a component to it and I saw this in a couple of the papers that we read too it's not that patients with ADHD cannot focus it's that they have a harder time focusing on the things that aren't interesting to them Mm -hmm. right and when you're a kid there's a lot more times when you maybe you're forced to focus to sit in a classroom and you're expected to focus on the material at hand that you may have no interest in. And so maybe maybe that speaks to part of it. I mean, this is a little bit of my own conjecture and commentary on the research, but perhaps as an adult, you find something that just you're more interested in. In our case example, the the patient was okay with PE class, you know, so perhaps as an adult, just having a little more freedom to decide how and where you spend your time, maybe that speaks a little bit. That's such a great question. I wish I knew, I wish I knew more about ADHD because I've, I, when I worked with, my patients, I felt like there were certain jobs that people were passionate about, but the attention was still difficult. So mm-hmm. um, I think uh, one of the places I saw this pop up was uh, a person who was a mechanic, and now mechanics, the billing on that is now very specified. Here's the amount of time you have to finish this job. Here mm-hmm. are the steps that you have to take. Everything is costed out quite specifically. And if you become inattentive or have a tough time staying focused on task one, task two, task three, or you get the order mixed up, then you're suddenly not making any money because you can't get the job done in the prescribed amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. And so I saw saw the need to treat that show up there, but then I saw other people who said, well, I'm, I'm selling cars, and I do fine because I can be distracted to anything till I wait for the next person to show up on the car lot and then I go and I'm able to focus and I'm really great at that. So, So I have wondered if people, if there might be a place where people with ADHD, depending on the type of ADHD, actually have benefit from the, from the the condition sure. rather than harm by it. And I just don't know the answer to those things, yeah. right? I'm, I'm unsure. Yeah. In any way, in any case, did you come across anything that spoke to those kinds of things being a factor in the changing of prevalence? I didn't a whole lot in my research on that. And again, we stayed mostly, here's the condition, here's how you treat it, and we're throwing out a few questions along the way. For sure. Okay. Um, uh, you're talking about prevalence and, uh, keep going, I think I interrupted. Um, no, I think we covered most of it. Um, something that I did want to kind of touch on a little bit different between child and adult is that with child presenting ADHD, you saw a lot of, of the emotional dysregularity and those sort of other comorbidities with that. Um, but with adults, you're going to see more commonly like major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety disorder. 
versus the emotion. It looks like you also see a lot of disruption of life, so dropping Mm -hmm. out of school, difficulty in relationships. Um, I I think I'd like to say that when I first started in psychiatry, I would hear something along the lines of, you need to treat adults who have ADHD, we used to believe, right? And the idea was that you didn't treat adults with ADHD, Mm -hmm. but I think that's changed quite a bit based on the data we have. Mm Um, So what are the risk factors for getting ADHD? So I wanted to mention just a couple of things because I think they're hot topics that are being discussed more right now. Um, Again, this is a rabbit hole that an entire podcast could discuss, so we're not going to comment too much on it. But there is this conversation about are we creating more ADD or ADHD, excuse me, in patients, both adults and children, just because of TikTok videos, screen time, immediate information, you know, are we making people have less of an attention span? And I think that's an interesting question, and there's perhaps, a, or there is, a lot more research to be done there. I did come across one study, this is kind of the only one I'm going to mention in it, um, it talked about increased screen time, meaning more than two hours a day in preschoolers being associated with worse inattentive problems. Um, problems with the studies, I thought, I mean, this was not a specific study about ADHD. Uh, these were not, you know, kids who had a diagnosis of that and they're preschoolers. Um, but, but they're just saying there is apparently a causal relationship uh, having to do with screen time and ADHD. So that, that's one of the risk factors that I think maybe you could talk somebody into doing a whole podcast on. Uh, we might have to do that. There are, there are some, in fact, there are Expanding that just a little bit, I think this is the child study out of uh, Canada, right? Yeah, And there are a couple of really great studies that look at children longitudinally. I think there's one out of England that we've uh, referenced before in this podcast looking at substance use disorders. I think there's one out of Australia we've referenced before in this series of podcasts out of uh, looking at uh, mental health. So, So there are a handful of these longitudinal studies with children that are very fascinating. And uh, I, I would, I would think that that would be a fascinating topic, what, what these have taught us about mental health. I would also add one other question. What if we were always this inattentive, but we just didn't have the ability to express it? What a good question. Right? We now have TikTok videos that are fast enough to keep us entertained sure. at our maximum capacity. Sure. I'll just throw that out there. You guys are going to look like, whatever. <laughs> All right. So, um, Katie, back to you. I think you already talked about the Vanderbilt, right? Did you want to talk about that anymore here or any of the other, uh, anything else with that? Oh, uh, no, I think we kind of covered that. Okay, so let's go to, uh, let's do a deeper dive on treatment. Yeah. All right, uh, multimodal treatment approach. Yeah, so, so when we're thinking treatment for ADHD, that's kind of the term we use, right? Multimodal treatment approach for kids that have moderate to severe levels of impairment. Um, we're going to go through several of the both pharmacological and non-pharmacological treatments for it. Um, and most, actually, Dr. Roundy, you could kind of inform me on this. As far as I know, most of the pharmacological treatment options, you do have both short-acting and long-acting. Is that is my understanding right? Yeah, so, so let me, <laughs> again, I, I really wish we had Dr. Thomas leading this podcast because <laughs> she would have done such a better job than, I, than I'm doing. Um, most of the formulations, I think, were originally short-acting. One of the great changes in medicine over time is not just how we build a compound to go into the body, but how we design a compound so that it's so that it's released in a way that's most efficacious. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, we don't want stimulants to 
be affecting children when we don't need the effect. Mm -hmm. And part of that has uh, something to do with sleep onset, some of that has something to do with change in personality and those kinds of things, right? We want the stimulants to help the, the children and adolescents and, and adults be able to be successful during the time that they need to focus. And then to kind of feel more like themselves when that focus is no longer required. So originally we had, if I understand correctly, we had these shorter acting uh, amphetamines and methylphenidate, so the mixed amphetamine salts and methylphenidate, you'd give those two or three times a day depending on how long you wanted the effect and then that effect would wear off in the afternoon. And then over time we developed, or we, uh, people much brighter than I developed things like osmotic pump pills where as the fluid in the pill uh, increased it would pump out the active medication moieties or the salts would dissolve in a way that was slower so you had different types of salts that would dissolve in a way that uh, gave a more constant blood level and it gave it over a longer period of time. And so I think your question is, are all of these available as one and the other? And at least for the oral formulations, I think they all started off as short acting. Mm -hmm. And then to have better kinds of strategies, they went to once a day dosing if possible. Mm -hmm. So instead of having kids who you hoped would take their uh, Ritalin in the middle of the day, instead you, you knew they got it in them because that's, I, I think, been an issue for a lot of children. Mm -hmm. They don't feel the same with the stimulants and so they'll balk at taking that second dose when mom and dad aren't there to say, uh, or a parent, I should say, is not there to say, you need to be more uh, more attentive to that. Yeah, with the school nurse. School yeah. nurse, yeah. yeah. Definitely is given more control though, right? Because you hear about drug holidays and students only take them you know during the school year not on the weekend and yeah so the different formulations seem to give some flexibility yeah the different for formulations definitely give flexibility and then the other thing that sometimes happens is you'll see uh, children who have a wear-off effect so you might have somebody who takes a long-acting mm -hmm. uh, mixed amphetamine salt but they need something that kicks in for a few hours after school so they can get their homework done and they the dose they took in the morning is wearing off um, I think the patches try to address this in, in different ways as well. So, so the, um, the people that are very good at treating ADHD have this uh, uncanny ability to kind of mix and match the long-acting, the short-acting, the patches, the non-stimulants, the stimulants in a way that gives people the ability to feel right yeah. and be able to focus and, and attend to the necessary tasks at hand when they need to. Yeah. Is that an answer? Is that no? Uh, absolutely, that's exactly what I was looking for. So, with those, with the stimulant medications, we'll talk about first. Those are really our first line treatment option. They're the most efficacious from all data that we've seen. Um, so, stimulants are a class two, or I'm sorry, a schedule two medication. Um, so, they are a controlled substance. This kind of speaks to how many tablets you know a patient is able to get at once and and how tightly they're regulated. It's monitored within the state. Um, so that because there's abuse potential so schedule two means that there there is a medical use for the drug but it does have an abuse potential yeah, I think there's a lot of diversion of stimulants yeah yeah, yeah. and we're gonna touch a little bit on, on that and use on college campuses so uh, the first one methylphenidate Ritalin uh, is the brand name that most of us are familiar with uh, most commonly prescribed medication I, I uh, you kind of brought up are we sure that that's still the most commonly prescribed um, yeah. The study I looked at in around 2010 indicated that, but there have been studies that I saw talking about the amphetamine salts proving to be just as efficacious, and perhaps it might be 
Yeah, I, I think Adderall is prescribed more now more than, than more than Ritalin. Than Ritalin. Yeah. I, I could be wrong. Yeah. I, I'm, I am often wrong. <laughs> I learn that a lot doing these podcasts. Yeah. Uh, regardless, so Ritalin, methylphenidate, uh, it's safe in healthy children. There have not been shown to be significant cardiac side effects, you know, consistently in these studies that we look at. The short-acting formulation is preferred as far as treatment, um, but there is uh, there is more concern with abuse in general with short-term uh, formulations of the medication. So, so let's probably suss that out just a little bit more. My understanding is, and, and depending on what you read, correct my understanding, yeah. okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, my understanding is that the short formulations give you more flexibility, the long yeah. formulations give you a better on-off effect. Mm-hmm. So, so they seem to, come out of the system a little more slowly. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the abuse potential is a little bit more challenging, though. Uh, generally speaking, we talk about short-acting, uh, short-acting opiates, short-acting stimulants as being... Um, they, they created a stronger um, feeling in the people that are taking them. There's a faster on and off. It seems to have a, a greater draw to use that substance again, right? Mm-hmm. And... The, the challenge we have with most of these mixed amphetamine salts, with most of the extended release formulations, is they're only extended release if you don't crush them up in many cases and uh, boil them or sure. uh, put them in a solvent, right? Sure. None of these substances, as far as I can tell, are truly safe from somebody that wants to uh, misuse them sure. and put them or, or move them to a short-acting formulation, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, and I think that when they talk about shorter-acting being preferred over long-acting in children with ADHD, uh, speaks to the side effects. So particularly with interrupting sleep, I know that long-acting uh, formulations uh, are going to affect your daily fluctuations in serotonin and melatonin concentrations. Interesting. More so, so than short-term. And that's something that I hadn't, I, and again, I haven't looked at this as, as much since I, I treat schizophrenia and schizophrenia. Amphetamines are the bane of our existence, right, because they're worsening the positive symptoms of psychosis. Yeah. And so um, when, we're, when, when I was looking at this last, I don't know that we had a lot of information about melatonin and serotonin effects. Yeah. And what we were instead looking at was that smooth period of time being on. So, so this may be a change from what I knew in the past. Yeah. Um, some other things with methylphenidate, as far as the mechanism, it's working by increasing extracellular levels of dopamine. It blocks its reuptake into the presynaptic neuron, um, so increasing activation in the frontal lobes, the basal ganglia, the cere- uh, cerebellum, all things that Katie talked about a little bit, areas in the brain where we know are being affected by uh, patients with ADHD and a d- deficiency in dopamine and how we're trying to target that with this medication. Um, Methylphenidate definitely has been shown to improve hyperactive symptoms, increases school performance. It's useful um, in adult ADHD as well. Some other side effects, kind of side benefits to the medication. It's also useful for smoking reduction, I saw, which I didn't didn't know this, or maybe at one time I did and I forgot, but one thing it said is it prevents the weight gain associated with quitting smoking. So I don't don't know. Maybe Maybe that's that's why, mm. yeah. Interestingly enough, Wellbutrin, uh, bupropion, mm-hmm. also has that uh, weight change effect. But what the patients that what they tell me is that you get all of the flavor of smoking, without any of the buzz when you take Wellbutrin. And I wonder if it's similar with 
uh, methylphenidate. Wellbutrin is a kind of like, I think, the way you describe methylphenidate, which is the reuptake right. effect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you block that so you get longer uh, dopamine in the cleft longer. Right. Wellbutrin seems to have that similar kind of effect. effect. Yeah. Yeah. We've touched on adverse side effects quite a bit, but just to mention again with methylphenidate, sleep problems, insomnia, things we have to watch for, headaches, loss of appetite, which can lead to weight loss. Those are all kind of big things to check with that. But overall, the the impression that I got from the papers that I read and from what you hear is that most people find the side effects to be manageable, if they do have any of them, compared to the benefit that they're getting from the medication or that they're seeing in their child taking the medication. And that's specifically with methylphenidate or is that both with methylphenidate and the mixed amphetamine salts? Uh, so that information where I read that was specifically with methylphenidate. Okay. Mixed amphetamine salts. Yeah, so the mixed amphetamine salts, similar, these are also stimulant medications, right? So class two, um, there is, we had kind of mentioned some research reporting that they're more effective than methylphenidate, and, and to your point, I wouldn't be surprised if Adderall is more commonly prescribed now. Um, I did find a Cochrane review in 2000, it was completed in 2016, um, and it, kind of quoting from it, found no evidence that supports any one amphetamine salt derivative over another and does not reveal any difference between long-acting and short-acting amphetamine preparations. I don't know if there's updates since then, but that's kind of, I mostly lumped all of the amphetamine salts together, uh, aside from Lizdex amphetamine, which I do want to mention a couple things with. That sounds good. And before we mention Lizdex Lizdex amphetamine, Mm -hmm. Katie, while while we're doing this, I want you to see if you can Google a way to um, get hydrolysis of uh, Lizdex amphetamine. Uh, to see if you can make it abusable while we get to that point. Oh, yeah, that'll be good. We'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. Um, again, very similar side effects, right? Me- mechanism of action, I think amphetamines have both dopaminergic uh, agonism, so dopamine agonism, and then I think they also have a, an effect on that reuptake, reuptake as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah, correct. Because I think we, we had a podcast looking at some of this and, and some of the differences between um, amphetamines and cot and cocaine and uh, oh, nice. all sorts of that stuff in the past, which was, I've had feedback that that might have been a little bit too chemically involved. <laughs> um, so side effects, very similar, I think, yeah, just at that. decreased appetite, nausea, abdominal pain, and stuff. Because these substances are so divertible, Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, there's been this ongoing effort to find amphetamines that are less misusable. Yeah. So tell me about Lizdex. So I, I thought that this study that talked about Vyvanse or Lizdex amphetamine was interesting. It is a pro-stimulant, right, pro-drug. Um, in order for it to have its therapeutic effects, it has to undergo enzymatic hydrolysis. Um, and at least in this study that I looked at, um, it cannot be ground up or dissolved um, to give you that rapid high that you get, not like some of these other stimulants can. So they were talking about how Lizdex amphetamine may be a better choice for uh, providers who are uh, giving it to college students just because of the abuse potential on college campuses. Selling diversion, right. All right, so Katie, just out of curiosity, were you able to Google immediately a way to get around that? (laughs) (laughs) I uh, I have to agree with what Ryan said. there's this quick like article that I found so that you have a much slower rise in your serum levels of the D-amphetamine. So it does seem like what you said is super accurate and it's not 
as right. You can't crush it. You can't get mm-hmm. to it. But did you find any? Did you find anything online that said we've figured out a way to <laughs> get around that? Did you right? look on the dark web? Say no. I I did not right. find that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The other question I think I had. I, I well. You guys were looking at that. I was uh, going to see if Tom could find anything about the relative uh, prescriptions of desam- uh, mixed amphetamine salts versus amp- uh, methylphenidates. Yeah. Yeah, so from my cursory research that I just did, um, it's interesting. Ritalin is more used by children in terms of it's the first line and has more prevalent use in children versus adults. But as in adults, uh, Adderall, the mixed amphetamine salts is more uh, prevalent than Ritalin. Mm. But we don't have a, like a overall total number. I don't have an exact total number. Okay. That's, that's at least very interesting. That's, that's uh, fascinating in itself. Mm. Uh, we've talked about stimulants. And, and again, I, I am not a child psychiatrist, so I'm not the right person to talk about treatment of ADHD. But I'm fully aware that stimulants are problematic for my patients, right? So I'm always thinking, how can I treat something without using a stimulant? That's always the first thing in my mind. Yeah. So if you need to avoid a stimulant, how do you do that? Yeah. So, so a few things to know with non-stimulants. So first of all, there are patients who don't respond well to stimulants. Um, there are patients, like we mentioned before, who have... Uh, comorbid substance use disorders, or there's a concern for the pot- potential for addiction. So these are some of the, the ways that a non-stimulant medication uh, comes into play. Also have been demonstrated safe and effective for children, adolescents, and, and adults, just not first line. Um, so the first one to talk about atomoxetine, and like you said, that one we need to have name recognition, which I believe that was one of the first ones you asked me on this rotation, what atomoxetine was. And, and you nailed it. I, no, no, oh, I didn't. Right. Katie nailed it. <laughs> Katie right. nailed it. She helped me, but at the time, I, I was overwhelmed. If your attending ever asks you, did you nail that, you say, yes, I did. I was still so... <laughs> Shamelessly. I was so scared of Dr. Roundy, my mind went completely blank. I didn't know. Were so. <laughs> you really scared of me? Um, no. I hope not. Jeez. No, I wasn't scared of you. <laughs> it, just those beginning that. of the rotations, you got to get a feel for where you're at. You, you have that in your notes, so you, you remember that Katie nailed it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Katie definitely <laughs> nailed it. Yeah. I, I know. She was nailing everything on the first day. That now, previous psych rotation. Yeah. <laughs> Atomoxetine we have here. Now, there's another non-stimulant that I didn't know about oh. that we found as we were uh, going through the notes yesterday. The Ke- Kelbury. Kelbury. Is yeah. that something that we're going to mention later? Or is yeah, that, we're uh, going to talk about Kelbury and some of the other okay, uh, I, treatments I here. I will bring it up then. Um, but I did want to mention with atomoxetine, so that does increase extracellular levels of norepinephrine, mm-hmm. but we're not having the same effect with dopamine that we get with the stimulants. Interestingly enough, I've seen a number of people get manic on mm-hmm. this medication, mm-hmm. which I think uh, we don't talk about a lot, but we, we do see it periodically here, yeah. at least at the state hospital. And uh, I, just as we would with some other treatments for depression. But the interesting part of this is I think they tried to get an FDA approval for depression and did not with uh, atomoxetine. So interesting that it would give us the ADHD treatment but not the depression treatment and that it still might cause mania. Hmm. So just interesting things. Other yeah. side effects, I think irritability, nausea, decreased appetite, yeah. Yeah, kind of the right. run-of-the-mill sort of antidepressant side effects, interestingly yep. enough. Yeah. Alpha, next, oh, alpha-2s. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say alpha-2 agonists, and I misspoke earlier. I called them antagonists. Guanfacine and clonidine, I believe, are agonists, right? Alpha-2 agonists. Agonists, um, okay. 
but uh, these some they're more effective. At least some of the literature I saw I saw when they're combining therapy, um, they can augment the efficacy of stimulants. Uh, anecdotally, talking with Dr. Thomas, uh, our, our preceptor, she said that a lot of times she'll try clonidine or guanfacine in younger patients uh, before jumping to the stimulant. So those are kind of the two to know there. A couple others that I wanted to mention while we're on the pharmacology train here. So melatonin, um, there is some indication to use melatonin combined with methylphenidate um, and that the combination of this can kind of improve the sleep disorder symptoms that you may get with methylphenidate. I'm going to be a little bit picky with the language you used. You said oh, an sure. indication, okay. but I think you mean there's some evidence that some it might be helpful thing. because Thank the indication, you. when we're talking indication, we want to be very specific about FDA approvals. Yeah, thanks for correcting No, it's not correcting you. It's just picky. No, it's good. It's good. You said it in a way that was reasonable, but I think <laughs> that was for the <laughs> podcast audience. <laughs> Ryan, you're way too nice. <laughs> there, so other, just some others to mention. You had mentioned, I, I struggle to say bupropion. Bupropion, I think. B-U-P-R-O-P-I-O-N. Bupropion. I want to throw another R in there. I think I do too. Bupropion. bupropion. Often confused with buprenorphine, just suboxone. Yeah. And well, buspirone. And buspirone. Let's well, just agree to call it Wellbutrin. <laughs> okay. How about that? We can Easier. agree to call it Wellbutrin. <laughs> Um, limited use in Wellbutrin as far as ADHD treatment uh, can be first line when others are contraindicated. But there is more evidence demonstrating that it's a, more effective for adults with ADHD than, than kids. Um, and then one last thing I wanted to mention with, with the medications is they're not obviously recommended for preschoolers. As far as what I saw, FDA approval to start medical m treatment with pharmaceuticals is after age 6, 6 to 12. I think you skipped over antidepressants while I was saying that oh, you were too I'm nice. Sorry. By the way, too nice, and that's a good thing, just, just to be clear. Uh, I think there's some use of the old TCAs, the old the old SNRI TCAs, so the, what are they, the secondary amines, so not amitriptyline, but nortriptyline, right. and maybe not uh, imipramine, but desipramine, although I'm not sure about that. It yeah. seems like either of those might have been used. Um, with, with medications that have FDA approval and don't have all of the anticholinergic side effects, right. I think we generally stay away from those. Mm -hmm. And I think there is some use, uh, maybe, of the new SNRIs, I think, uh, uh, there was some use of um, venlafaxine or desvenlafaxine, but I think the negative the studies were all negative. There was nothing that ever showed that it actually worked. That is good. And and I don't know about uh, the other one, Cymbalta. What is the generic? Duloxetine. Duloxetine. I think that might have been thrown around as a possible treatment because it has the noradrenergic reuptake inhibition, but I don't know that that ever showed benefit either. Yeah. And I didn't come across any. Yeah, I don't. I don't think they did. So it. so don't immediately assume that antidepressants means newer ones. I think that was really limited to um, Wellbutrin and maybe some of the old TCAs. Now the other, uh, the other medication I don't see on this list and I would also uh, be very cautious using is um, the medication for shift work disorder or sleep work dis circadian rhythm sleep disorder, shift work type, and then like getting on planes, right? What is that? What is the, what is the name? Modafinil. Modafinil, thank you. And then armadafinil, I think, is the, uh, is the enantiomer that was also patented and sold for a while. There was some evidence using that in treatment of ADHD, I think, for a while. But again, I never, I've never seen anything where that really stuck around. And because it has some labeling issues, I think it's a lot easier to use. Uh, if you're going off-label, start with uh, 
Wellbutrin. Yeah, well, right. Sure. If you're going off label, and there are a lot of other labeled molecules you can use before that. Just anecdotally, I had uh, while I was in my private practice, I had somebody show up with a, I think it was a New York Times article, or maybe uh, it's, it's maybe a, a New Yorker article. I don't remember for sure. And what they were saying was, hey, um, everybody wants to give me stimulants. I hear you're the guy that won't give stimulants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to get I'm trying to get guanfacine. Will you give me guanfacine? <laughs> and I said. What's guanfacine? <laughs> so I look it up. It's not a stimulant. I'm like, sure. <laughs> Here you go. And the guy came back and said, it's a miracle for me, right? And so I think it's important to note that, uh, much like you said, stimulants don't work for everybody, and sure. we need to make sure that we're finding the right treatment. It's sort of like clozapine. Just because clozapine is the best treatment for schizophrenia, generally speaking, it doesn't mean that it works for everybody, right? Yeah. So I think points worth uh, adding to that discussion. For sure. Abuse potential. Do we want to talk about this? Can I just say one thing with it? Because oh, yeah, I think yeah. it's super interesting. I, I don't want to go too long here. but, but I, was this kidding. Is... I was kidding about that. I really wanted to talk about this. Oh, you do <laughs> want to talk about <laughs> yeah, it? Okay, absolutely. great. Absolutely. Well, there's one, one really interesting thing from it that I, I think definitely bears mentioning. So obviously stimulant abuse is a big problem on college campuses across the United States. Um, college students typically you know, respond that stimulant medication is easy for them to obtain. Um, and so there's some, I saw a few different numbers, but most of them were in this neighborhood, that stimulant misuse among college students may be as high as 35%. I saw one number that was closer to 50%, which I thought was kind of high. But. And maybe one number as high as 60%. Yeah, yeah. So misuse among patients with a valid prescription to get stimulants is high as 62%, which, so the greatest abusers, I guess, would be those who are getting it. So there are some tests that you can use, I think, to screen somebody who has ADHD. Mm-hmm. And maybe another podcast in the future would be, uh, how do you have, I think there's a computer test where you have to do like a tap when you see mm-hmm. a certain thing happen. I, I, don't, yeah. I don't know the details. I looked into it at one point because I didn't want to be the guy where somebody read the criteria for uh, ADHD. Oh, yeah. Uh, tell me about how you are. Whereas a kid, oh, it was like I was driven around as if uh, by a motor. I was particularly <laughs> inattentive. Like sometimes my mom would call my name and I would never hear it. And, and it's like you're going, wait, that's that's word for word. Word, word for word on the criteria, right? <laughs> um, so so um, we assume that what people tell us is accurate, right? And yeah. that has some risks associated with sure. it. And I think that's what you're pointing out. Sure. And so the interesting thing with that abuse on college campuses is while we know that these stimulants improve memory, cognitive function, so you know they, they're going to help somebody as they're studying, taking exams, writing papers. I saw two different papers that mentioned it did not seem to improve their performance in school. So, so a critical finding is that prescription stimulant misuse has been found to be negatively associated with academic performance. And one of the the ways that this was kind of elucidated or or highlighted was um, basically when, you know, I I get a a stimulant and I feel like that, I no longer have to put in the hard work. Oh. I don't have to study as hard. I don't have to study as much. I can go off and do whatever else. And then when it's time for me to focus, I can just take my medication and I'll retain everything and I'll be good to go. Your procrastination. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was very interesting, like not correlated with necessarily doing better. So if somebody's going to misuse the stimulant, what you want to do is tell them that they still have to put in the work. It just helps them focus better while misuse they're Misuse it work. properly. If you're, I shouldn't say that. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. 
non-pharmacological treatments. Yeah, so these I wanted to go through a, a little bit faster, but non-pharmacologically, non-pharmacolo- of course parents particularly are concerned over the long-term exposure risks of giving their children stimulants. Uh, there's a lot of pa- uh, a lot of people who feel that way. Approximately 50% of parents with ADHD children use alternative treatments alone or in combination with pharmaceuticals uh, for treatment. And so I guess the first thing to talk about, one of the first options is behavioral parenting interventions. And I can I put you on the spot, Katie? Because we just learned a little bit more from Dr. Thomas about like what exactly that meant or sometimes how oh, you see yeah. that. Can yeah, yeah. T- um, she was telling us that the parents and the child are interacting but there's kind of like a screen where like a psychiatrist or somebody else is watching from like this two-way mirror and the parent has like a like an earpiece in where they're being kind of coached into how to interact with their child how to kind of augment some of these behaviors which I thought was kind of interesting yeah yeah I didn't realize that that's a lot of times how it was actually performed uh, and it is interesting with that, with the parenting interventions, kind of when we talk about the heritability of ADHD, right? So you might actually be helping. Potentially helping ADHD everybody. Parent. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so. And perhaps even the resident that's listening in. I, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. um, classroom-based interventions, of course, is another thing that we see. So, you know, schools that take um, interventions that are aimed at improving academic performance, shortening task lengths, moving those students. Uh, into a more friendly environment. So I think that that speaks back to the multimodal, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. It it seems like there was an NIH study that was based around this distantly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Did you get a chance to look at that by any chance? So that one I'm trying to remember um, if there's something specific from it. It might have been the Biedermans where they would, I think they tried to put kids kids with ADHD closer to the front of the room. Yeah. But but I think, I don't know how that ended up working out. You're saying here... uh, Interventions aimed at improving academic performance are task shortening stuff and keeping the stuff salient, maybe more interesting stuff along those lines, putting it on a tablet. Yeah, but again, like so many topics within what we're talking about here, there's a whole rabbit hole of things we could talk about with this. There's entire companies, private companies that are, um, you know, dedicated to helping kids with ADHD and, you know, like learning training things and doing things on metronomes and doing specific activities that are meant to help with focus and attention and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's a lot more that we could go into there. Um, psychological therapy. So, um, I, what do I want to say about this? I guess that therapy can be used, especially in treating some of the comorbid things, like Katie had mentioned. Um, a lot of times ADHD is not traveling alone. So helping with social skills, anger management, all of those types of things are, are also going to greatly benefit from psychological therapy. So not treating ADHD, treating the symptoms associated with Other it. things with it. Okay. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, diet. Tom's going to talk in a minute about a specific dietary option, so I'm not going to steal too much thunder from there. There is some concern with, uh, you know, when you're talking about reducing food coloring intake or processed sugars or things like that. One, there's simply not enough data yet, consistent data yet. And two, that can be hard for families, right? And it can be, the cost can be a hard thing for families to find to find other options. So not saying it's not a good treatment option, but there's things to figure out. I was thinking about that a little bit, um, this 
question about one of the red dyes, I think, is the, the real issue, right? And mm -hmm. that actually went in front of the FDA. Mm -hmm. And in what one of the articles we read said was a, quote, controversial decision, mm -hmm. end quote. They decided to continue the, F, the food dye, right? Yeah. So apparently there's a handful of dyes that are FDA approved to use in foods. Yeah. And, and so I think the idea is that if they're approved to use and everybody's using those, then the liability associated with those is quite a bit lower, right? It's a lot right. harder to come after uh, companies that are putting red dye number five in their, what is it, their main red I think the one we looked red, at was orange. Red, red main hot dogs or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need Andrew we, here we, to talk about Yeah, it. Andrew loves those things. Um, <laughs> so, so I was thinking about that quite a bit and how hard it would be to pull that out. But there's clearly a lot of interest in this and at least a lot of belief in the idea that the food dyes are problematic. Sure. And, and belief in the families that have patients or children with ADHD, right? So, sure. so there's something hot there. What it, what it is, yeah. I think we still... Food dyes know. and sugars sugar intake are big dietary things that we could talk a lot about those. So. I'm pretty sure sugar's okay. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you like the negative consequences of insulin. Meditation. Yeah, meditation. I There's some newer stuff that uh, is coming out on that and, and a lot of research ongoing right now. There's sp some specific forms of meditation, and I am going to mention one in just a minute. Um, but I did think it was interesting that one of the Cochrane reviews said that they're just unable to draw any conclusions regarding the effectiveness of meditation as a, as a first-line therapy for ADHD. Did we check yoga that, so, yet, though? Wasn't there a podcast on yoga? Ah, there might have been. <laughs> so, no. anyway, yeah. In, in fact, with one of my very favorite students, I've dropped his name enough, we'll, we'll not do that today. <laughs> I have a lot of favorite students, Tom. Pick that up. <laughs> medical food so we were you mentioned uh fatty acid combinations and i think tom is going to pick that up now right yeah yeah uh, so one food that uh i just learned about is called it's actually a nutraceutical called varian and it's a long chain polyunsaturated omega-3 fatty acid which presents in marine life usually found in krill salmon herring and other types of fish and one study that I read about uh, that was done by the Texas Child Neurology Department showed approximately 60% of the users who completed a three-month study with Varian, this uh, poly... So, so I think Viren is oh, what Viren. I've heard, yeah. Viren is a long, the long-chain polyunsaturated omega-3 fatty acid, had some uh, beneficial effects. I think some of the criticism of the study was that it was based on self-reporting symptoms by the parents rather than um, based on, and that, that may be subjective to recall biases. Um, and I think more studies will, would need to be done uh, to evaluate some of the cognitive symptoms associated with ADHD and how Viren plays a role in that, including uh, sustained attention, executive function, processing speed, or multitasking. And I think we discuss, you were discussing about a test that you could use, and I remember there's one test called the quotient test, where you press buttons, and this would be a way that you could assess processing speed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so virin is an interesting molecule, right? So it, it, it came to us, oh gosh, I want to say about 15 years ago, roughly. It was approved as a medical food. Now, in a way, I kind of felt had by the FDA, right? Because they, they approved this as a medical food. Um, and I think the way it's worded, so, so this had followed the... Uh, the uh, 
what is it, the Deplin, which is tetrahydrofolate, right? So the body, if, if you have a gene that doesn't allow the conversion of folate, folic acid or folate to tetrahydrofolate, tetrahydrofolate, then there's association with depression. And so there was this approval, and, and it does seem that maybe that approval is a medical food for Deplin or tetrahydrofolate, and it's now generic. It, it seems like that actually helped some of us treat some patients that we didn't have a good treatment for before. Um, and, and so the next thing that came out was this Byron treatment, which is the, this proprietary uh, combination of fatty acids. The idea was that uh, the neurons, um, if they get enough of the fatty acid and they're more flexible and they're more able to function well, that you have a more, uh, that lipid bilayer is a better lipid bilayer is the idea, if I, if I understood it at the time. But, but it really, the, the studies that were used to, to approve this as a medical food don't seem to be the same quality as the studies that are required to have something be a medication. And so I think my, my takeaway from the Viren experience was be careful just because something's a medical food, don't assume that it actually treats anything. Now, now the counter to that is that I had a, a patient that I was treating uh, as an outpatient, this would have been around 10 years ago. Um, and and I, I sat and watched this patient who could not pay attention to me, right? And while I was watching, there was one little hole in the chair that she was sitting on. And by the time she was done talking to me, which was about a 40-minute uh, interview, the, that chair seat had been absolutely torn up, right? The, the foam was out of it. The, the material was taken out. And, and this wasn't, there was nothing, nothing purposeful about that, right? We talk about oppositional defiant being purposeful. It, it, like if you rejected her and said, hey, I, it looks like you're tearing up the chair there. Oh, I'm very sorry. <laughs> let, me, sorry let me change what I'm doing, right? And, and uh, we put this patient on Viren, and within, I don't know, a month, it was a completely different interview just absolutely stunningly strikingly different now the challenge we have is that she had uh, this patient had uh, uh, some diversion problems with stimulants right stimulants were really just not an option I think this patient had been tried on the alpha 2 agonists had also uh, been treated on the with uh, atomoxetine and so um, does it work? I don't know. I'm left without a lot of good data guiding me. I feel a lot more comfortable attributing benefit to a medication than I do a medical food at this point in my career. Yeah. So interesting it's, stuff. Interesting. Re relatively costly. It was like $60 per month out of pocket and not covered by insurance. In, in terms of costly, that's not that costly. That's not that. It's it's costly for a family trying to make ends meet, and it's a lot less than a lot of other medications. And you're right, insurance doesn't cover it. Now I looked into this later. Viren is not available at this point. I think uh, it's hard to get your hands on this if you want it. And there are some other formulations that use the krill and uh, have the you know, proprietary omega three fatty acids that are in different combinations. I don't I don't know the end story of this. But I think one of the challenges we have is because it's available, because uh, polyunsaturated omega-3 fatty acids are available everywhere, I don't think we're going to ever see a study that looks at this as a, here's a medication, here's the study we're doing on it, unless the, unless the NIH picks it up. Other thoughts about Viren and, and the omega-3 fatty acids? Well, here's one I like. Katie, video games for the treatment of ADHD. Yes, this is so cool to me. So 
Um, it's actually FDA approved for the treatment of ADHD in kids. So it was originally developed um, by UCSF and it was called NeuroRacer. Um, and it was tested in adults 60 to 85 um, with the goal of improving like cognition and sort of information processing um, and trying to like improve the plasticity of the brain throughout the aging process. Um, and then they kind of found that that it can be used in kids with ADHD. So cool. So it centers around participants driving around a racetrack where there are like different signs, different obstacles, um, things that pop up that are gonna kind of pull your attention away from other things that you are needing to focus on. So you have to like tap every time you see a symbol or something where other things are being distractors. So it's kind of um, involving those complex brain processes. It's called Endeavor RX. So cool. So um, indicated for kids 8 to 12 years old with ADHD, and it's typically played for 25 minutes for five days a week. So it's pretty pretty cool. For at least four consecutive weeks. Yeah. And this has an FDA approval. So mm -hmm. did they find improvement in ADHD symptoms, like if, if, if these children who were playing this game, which sounds a little bit like Mario Kart to me, right? <laughs> um if they went to school, did their school performance increase? Did they see changes in other domains of function? I didn't see any data like on like how it improved and where it improved, but that just there was a significant improvement in symptoms. And again, this this podcast isn't necessarily about the deep dive on every topic. Mm -hmm. It's just the things that come up I, I have mm -hmm. to ask. All right, another one that I think we've mentioned in the past, uh, ETNS, uh, trigeminal nerve stimulation. Tom, I think you got this one. Yeah, so I learned a little bit about uh, ETNS, which is uh, e trigeminal nerve stimulation. And this is a new device, which was uh, first uh, was considered the first non-drug treatment for ADHD. And the company that uh, did the trial was called Monarch ETNS Systems. And it's indicated for patients age 7 through 13, and it was granted uh, marketing authorization by the FDA in 2019. So effectively, this is a cell phone-sized device uh, which produces low-level elect electrical stimulation to branches of the trigeminal nerve. The device connects to a wire uh, to a small patch that adheres to the forehead just above the, eye the, eye the eyebrows, and it feels like a tingling sensation on the skin. In terms of the mechanism, mechanism of action for ETNS, is not really known. It's speculated uh, that uh, from neuroimaging studies that ETNS increases activity in brain regions that are known to be important in regulating attention, emotion, and behavior like the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex as we talked about in the beginning. Uh, clinical trials suggest that a response to ETNS may take up to four to, four to five weeks to become evident. And a clinical trial uh, by Monarch uh, showed statistically significant improvement in ADHD compared to placebo. It's contraindicated for children under seven years of age and patients with an active implantable pacemaker or an active implantable neurostimulator or patients with body-worn devices such as insulin pumps and other types of uh, body-worn devices and pumps. There's side effects include drowsiness, increase in appetite, trouble sleeping, teeth clenching, headache and fatigue, and there's no serious 
adverse events associated with the use of the device. So, so I always feel so incapable compared to my um, my own math students, right? In terms of biology, or not biology, but in terms of anatomy. So VNS devices have sort of a bidirectional activity, right? Uh, it, the VNS does, right? It has afferent and efferent. Does the trigeminal nerve have that same kind of efferent and afferent activity? Why, why we, we know that the mechanism of action is unknown, but how in the world did somebody come up with putting a patch on somebody's forehead and running electricity through it? Because we know it's, it is both afferent and efferent, right? Because we test it, like sensation on the face, right? Mm -hmm. It's trigeminal nerve, uh -huh. but then also the ma uh, ambassador, motor control through trigeminal nerve. So yeah, it is both. <laughs> it's so simple when you guys talk about it that way. <laughs> I feel like I'm so far behind you guys chronologically. Um, so, so ETNs, I think, is what I've heard it called. I, I don't remember if that's right or not. ETNs, um, is it used? Does anybody has anybody seen this used in any of the practices anywhere where you're at? No, I haven't. Mm -mm. I've not seen it used. No. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of think you could become a device specialized practice. Yeah, I don't prescribe anything. I use devices. We have we talked about uh, ITBS, V. Uh, we have TMS, TMS, RTMS, right, as well. Um, ETNS. I think uh, video games, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, you're the doctor that people would want to go to. For sure, <laughs> Mario Kart. That's where I go. That's where I go to. <laughs> uh, supplements. I, you, there's who is it that's tackling supplements? There's about 47 of those here. So I'm yeah. guessing it's Tom. <laughs> I didn't know that I was tackling No, them. I will tackle those. Yeah, yeah, I'll tackle okay. them. Tom, Thomas had it's a, very Tom-like. Yeah, yeah, Thomas had a podcast that he prepared uh, last week. Yes. The, the weeks kind of run together for me, and uh, I think there were nearly 70 pages of prep work for that podcast. Yeah. And, and uh, it, was it was an really, interesting topic. I had to dive deep. Yeah. I love that smile. Look at that smile. <laughs> All right, so uh, supplements. Yeah, so I... I could sum up the research that I looked at with supplements by, by this line from one of the papers, and it said that the lack of standardization in herbal, herbal preparations make them more difficult to compare to standard ADHD treatments. Um, and so that's, you know, we, they're just not under the same regulations that uh, the pharmaceuticals we use are, and so you end up it just makes it more difficult to compare them. And, and basically the takeaway with most of these is that more research needs to be done. I will say that there is one called this, I'm going to butcher it, but pycnogenol. I think that's right? Yeah, it looks like it. Pycnogenol. French maritime pine bark extract. Uh, seem, initial data, small studies, seems to be the most promising. Um, it's believed that the therapeutic benefits were mediated via an increase in nitric oxide production, hmm. which modulates dopamine and norepinephrine release and intake. So uh, maybe helpful, maybe uh, something we talk about more in the future, more studies going on right now, but uh, yeah, that was maybe the... I thought it was interesting, one. a couple of the comments you had, for example, yeah. uh, ginkgo biloba. Yeah. Inferior. Inferior, yeah. So, so really all of these, St. John's wort, Ginseng, ginkgo biloba, valerian, ningdong, these are all supplements that have not been shown to be more effective than first-line treatment, and they're hard to study, but there are some ongoing, kind of some ongoing research in those areas. 
um, or Orexcellin A. Hope I'm saying that right. It's a flavonoid isolated from the root of. Katie told me I shouldn't even attempt to to <laughs> attempt Scutellaria. to do this one. Scutellaria bicolensis. Scutellaria. That's my new favorite uh, plant. Scutellaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, Georgia. Yeah. So it's an herb commonly found in East Asia. Um, I guess it's a known antagonist of GABA-A receptors, which this a little bit seems like out of left field to me because we haven't been talking about GABA-A receptors. No, it's been all dopamine or maybe norepinephrine, yeah. Yeah, so for that molecule molecule in particular, there's only been animal studies done and uh, more to come. Also, vitamins like vitamin C, E, B6 are all ones that have been looked at and different people have made claims about the effectiveness of treatment but there hasn't been any consistent data showing that, that they can treat ADHD. No randomized control trials. And I think you also looked for uh, anything in Cochrane reviews that Correct. might be associated with this, because I think we see kind of a summary of Cochrane data on stuff that's alternative or complementary right. medicine. Yeah. Same with minerals. Same thing as vitamins. Magnesium has been implicated and looked at. Zinc, iron, among others. Just uh, similar data. Uh, no one mineral has been proven to be significant. And... Uh, the one thing that I that I did read on both vitamins and minerals is that uh, we have to tease out, is it just that there's like poor uh, diet in general, that, you know, somebody's nutritionally deficient in some of these things. And so, of course, they see overall improvement by supplementation with essential vitamins and nutrients. So vitamins and minerals. So, so hold on. Let me back up and make sure I understood what you just said. So um, sure. what I think I heard at first was it doesn't look like it makes a difference. But then if you get a group of people that have poor nutrition and you give them uh, both sure. vitamins and vitamins or uh, minerals, maybe it helps? Yeah, but it's like, well, yeah, it helps everything. They're, they have a poor diet. They you know, are deficient in many of these things. So are we able to isolate it and say, yeah, it's zinc that's improving their ADHD? Okay. No. I think I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, 2007 Cochrane Review of Homeopathy for ADHD or Hyperkinetic Disorder concluded there was no evidence or effectiveness for homeopathy for the global symptoms, core symptoms, or related outcomes. So pretty much nothing. Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe that will change it. It sounds like there is uh, better data being researched with some of the articles that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. I know that in some of the recent podcasts we've talked about the differences between preliminary data that might push us further down to randomized control trials, and perhaps we'll get there eventually with some of those things, perhaps maritime French pine bark. Maybe. That'd be kind of cool. But there is a big push. I mean, with what we said earlier, uh, there's a lot of parents, particularly, that are hesitant to put their child on a stimulating medication like Adderall or Ritalin long-term, and they're concerned about that. So I I think that there's uh, a pretty good backing behind looking more into alternative treatments. What's uh, coming in the future? Where are we headed? Yeah, so I I saw some interesting stuff on methylphenidate for the research with that, indicating that perhaps there's increased cell proliferation and differentiation in the dentate gyrus. Um, So increases in brain-derived neurotropic uh, factor levels. So there may be additional benefits that are coming from some of these. Um, If it's okay with you, Dr. Roundy, I I didn't, I was going to talk a little bit more about there's a specific type of training, but I think I'll just mention with it as far as the meditation. The focus training? Yeah, it's called external focus training. It's a very old technique. In fact, it's like ancient technique, mm-hmm. I've heard. Um, but essentially, the idea is you uh, get the patient to focus on one object and one object alone. There's nothing else in their field of view. And to imagine it as, uh, how do they describe it? Perceive the small object as large. 
then you go through this intermittent kind of uh, treatment episodes of when you're focusing on that and there is evidence to show that that does improve overall focus yeah um, and distractibility but, but it seems different than meditation yeah okay yeah so i see where you put that up yeah so you don't want to talk about that? Uh, I don't want to talk more about that. That's as much as I want to talk about it. Fair so, enough. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you have a chart here, related studies associated with the external focus, but that's what you're saying. Skip, yeah, skip, that, that just went into some more specifics. That's from the Cochrane things. And as a preview to a topic we just did, or a post view. Yeah, post view. RTMS. Yeah, so uh, yeah, last week we did a po podcast on RTMS, and we discuss the potential for its use in depression, specifically treatment-resistant depression and OCD. And we mentioned at the, towards the end of the podcast that there's some uh, current studies that are, are going on in ADHD and PTSD. And I did some uh, initial review of some of those studies and uh, a lot of the, the material out there in the literature was based on um, literature reviews and there's not enough randomized clinical trials yet but there are uh, some that are ongoing and we need more data but it's showing some promise in the early, in its early phases for treatment of ADHD. Yeah I think uh, should it pan out I, I think uh, having a, a RTMS or a TMS device or maybe even eventually a TBS device right mm -hmm. uh, going to be an important part of being a psychiatrist so I'll be interested to see if they can help us sort some things out with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in the future, I would I would love to have a, a magnet here. To be use. Amazing! It'd be yeah. so cool. Uh, I don't know if you guys realize this, um, other than whoever has ADHD here. <laughs> We're at the one hour and thirty seven minute mark. This makes it one of the longest podcasts we've had, and it went very quickly to me. It seemed like there was a ton of content. I really appreciated the way you guys went through this. Uh, let's do some take-homes or final thoughts, Tom. So ADHD seems to be a very prevalent disorder. I learned that it's not only affecting a small population, but 5 to 7% of the total population, which is fairly large, affecting children and adults. And it's interesting to learn about the therapeutics, that there, there's many different therapeutics and uh, how uh, each has a different role in the treatment of ADHD, including video games, ETNS, uh, TMS potentially, and then the psychopharmacology. I'm, I'm very fascinated to learn about this field, and as a future psychiatrist, I, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity to learn about it and sp spend this time with you guys. Yeah, very, very nicely said. I think last time I started with Katie, so Katie will start with you again. Take homes <laughs> from this. Um, yeah, there's just a lot of content on ADHD and so much more research that's still being done and a lot more to develop and I just I think it's a really interesting area and I think that Ryan you did a really good job talking about um, all of the different treatments and how medications can really help and um, I think this podcast can kind of hit a lot of different areas within primary care psychiatry even internal medicine and kind of a broad range of um, fields of medicine so yeah, I think, I think you did a pretty good job on that. Ryan, last word. Yeah, I I agree with what you guys have said so far. I it makes me happy. I guess I would say that there's so many different avenues being explored. I think that that speaks to the problem that it is, and people wanting to find good solutions and safe solutions, and 
and really being able to help out that many people who are affected by it. And so I, I love that there's research going into all, all avenues, you know, um, and I am excited to see where it goes in 10 years. So. My take home is I really enjoyed this podcast. So this is a, we've, we've had some different podcasts over the last couple of weeks. I think we had a podcast, Thomas, you, you did a podcast that was a traditional persuasion podcast. I, I like that a great deal, right? Problem, barriers to use, solution, and future, right? And here's how we can even make it better. Um, kind of a, a very, very, very classic approach to, pod, to, a, to a persuasive uh, argumentation. And then today we did something that we haven't done very much, which is here is a, a known diagnostic entity, and here is like the full approach to it, right? How do you diagnose it? How do you identify it? What are the features of it? How do you treat it? And it was a little bit different because most of the time I'm asking the students to get into literature. You did that somewhat, right? I appreciated that because you guys did tackle the Cochrane reviews looking at the outcomes data. Right? Had you not done that, I would have been like, I don't know about this podcast, right? <laughs> so, so I think that uh, for any students that listen to a podcast all the way through, which I know does happen at times, um, Hopefully, students that are potentially doing this in the future will consider this type of a podcast as something that they would use as, as their contribution to, to the information base. Um, I really appreciate uh, all of you. You've all been great students to work with. Amazing students, I think, is the language I usually use. And uh, good luck in the future. I will uh, ask one other question that I sometimes ask at the end of the podcast. What's next for you guys? Uh, Thomas, what's next for you? So I have a month-long study for my upcoming boards, which I'm very excited about. <laughs> about getting done. Yeah, about getting done and moving on. And then I'm starting my uh, first away rotation outside of RVU at Cedar sinai in Los Angeles. Very cool. In psychiatry. In psychiatry, yeah. Katie, what do you have next? Um, yeah, similar to Tom with boards. I take mine in two days, actually, so that is exciting. <laughs> you weren't supposed to be here today, I think. Thank you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I love doing this, so it's fine. Um, yeah, but I take my boards in two days, and then, like Tom, I'll be doing sub-eyes in psychiatry as well. Do you have one lined up that's next? Um, not for July, but I do for, like, August, September. What do you have? Um, it's down in Sarasota, Bradenton area in Florida, so I get to spend a whole month with my mom and also doing psychiatry, so I'm super excited about that. Hold on, Sarasota is by that beach that's ranked like the best beach in America, right? Mm -hmm. It's on the that west coast uh, by it's the... Like Gulf side, yeah, it's... White sand beaches. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I think yeah. I was there once, and it's a beautiful beach. I don't like beaches, and I actually like that <laughs> beach. Sarasota's a pretty area. It's yeah. a pretty area, yeah. I think we found, like, this Amish pie place that makes key lime pies. Ooh, I'll have to check that out. Yeah, I think uh, Google it, you'll find it. So. Good thing you'll be done with boards. No kidding. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Good for you. And uh, Ryan, what's next for you? So boards in July. Mm -hmm. um, and then in August, my first elective rotation will be in an ICU, internal medicine ICU down in Arizona. That's very, very so, cool. Yeah. Which, which hospital? So I'll be doing this one at the same one where I did most of my third years. So it's Summit Regional Healthcare. Um, I'll do... Uh, that and then hopefully jump to some sub eyes in the fall. Is there any association with uh, the Arizona Medical School still there? Uh, the hospital? Uh huh. Yeah, with the U of A. U of A. So that's a that'll be great. That'll be a, a great academic rotation. Yeah. Get you all anyway, guys. Uh, thanks again. On that note, team out. Team, team out. out.